Hola familia, this is episode número 4 of the Spanish for Creative Clinicians podcast with Nicaraguan board certified music therapist Carlos Andres Rodríguez. Hey, familia, welcome back to the Spanish for Creative Clinicians podcast. And I'm so happy and so thankful for all of you. Last time I checked the statistics, we were showing that we've had about 320 plays of only those three first episodes. So thank you so much for your support. I'm really humbled by everybody has been reaching out on social media, on via email, and just saying how grateful they are. So thank you, thank you so much for doing that. You know, this is a project that just came out of my passion for helping the, the professionals in the clinical setting and in the school setting, all of the creative clinicians, all of the creative clinicians that are just doing their best every single day to serve better our population. So this is for you. And if you have any feedback for me, you can go to uh, Spanish for Creative Clinicians at gmail.com, send me a message, or you can also DM me through the social platforms, Facebook and Instagram at Spanish for Creative Clinicians. And as I've said before, if you want to leave a review, you can go to Spanish for Creative Clinicians.com forward slash rate. Today, I'm excited because I actually get to converse and you're going to be able to listen to this conversation I had with my good friend and colleague, uh, Carlos Andres Rodriguez. Uh, I met Carlos Andres when I worked in hospice in uh, South Florida, Tucson's Hospice and Palliative Care. And it was a wonderful experience. I mean, death is such an incredible teacher coming from somebody who worked in the medical setting like myself that... I had my opinions on, on end-of-life care and, and what hospice could offer uh, and going into hospice care and actually seeing that compassionate, wonderful service that they do in, in end-of-life in hospice care. It was just mind-blowing. I felt very, very uh, blessed to be part of that team. And so I wanted to converse with uh, Carlos Andres because he has a very interesting story and you're going to listen to it. Uh, some of the highlights is um, talks about his life in Miami and his family being from Nicaragua and the importance of Spanish in his household. He also talks about how 95% of the people in Hialeah, where he lives, speak Spanish at home. He talks about his college career, how knowing Spanish in Miami has been, quote, priceless. He also shares how there's so many Cuban nurses in Miami and you will not believe what their professional careers actually were when they're in Cuba. He also said that when surrounding yourself with co-workers, quote, there's beauty in learning from each other, unquote. He shares the importance of being a mediator as a bilingual speaker for these family members and for staff members. How in the Latino community, food intake equates health and how that has been challenging at the end of life and explaining uh, the importance of of food intake or lack thereof at the end of life. Uh, also, he converses about common Spanish words using hospice care, and I'm going to attach those to the show notes. So make sure that if you're on Apple Podcasts or any of the platforms, go check out the show notes and they're going to be 
right there. He also shares popular songs in Spanish for hospice patients and the use of the word negrito or negrita as a term of endearment in Latinx countries. But before we get started, I wanted to share with you the review of the week. This is the review of the week. Review of the week. Reseña de la semana. And this review of the week comes from Emilio Wright. And she says, I'm a white monolingual board certified music therapist working in Central Florida. I've been struggling to serve my patients who are from a Hispanic background and or whose primary language is Spanish. In that struggle, I've also dealt with feeling guilty for not being able to serve them better. Hello, white fragility. Tony's approach in this podcast is like a hug from an old friend. No judgment or expectations, just sharing life and learning together. Not only am I getting a deeper understanding of his experience, but he's also reminding me of why I fell in love with music therapy. When I listen, I feel encouraged and energized to continue growing as a music therapist. I'm so grateful to be able to learn from his experience. Thank you. Amelia, so much for that review. I appreciate it so much. And if you guys want to be highlighted as the review of the week for a future episode, just go to the website or directly in your podcast manager. But you can also go to the website SpanishForCreativeClinicians.com forward slash rate. And that will take you directly to Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcast. Just go ahead and leave a review and let me know how this uh, show is being of service to you. podcast and today I have a special guest a really good friend of mine we got to work together at Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care of South Florida and he's going to be talking to us a little bit about you know the death and dying process and the hospice experience with uh, Latino patients and Spanish speaking patients I have here the one and only Mr. Carlos Andres Rodriguez welcome buddy thank you sir thank you for having me over Happy to be here. How you been doing? Doing great. You know, all things considered, just, you know, with the whole pandemic going on, taking things one day at a time. Uh, but honestly, I've been, I've been feeling good. It's been a piece, just trying to be in the moment as best as possible. And like I said, one day at a time. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I, I think the one day at a time statement is so important uh, just in life in general, I, I think that when we speak with our with our clients and our patients and, and the anxiety that all of this process provokes, right? Because there's a lot of uncertainty in this process of, of a pandemic that many generations have really not lived to this magnitude. And so for us as creative clinicians, in, in our case, music therapists, that we provide that therapeutic presence and that validation and that safe space through music, uh, that, that really brings comfort and and we can help those families know that, you know, it's okay to take one day at a time, especially when it comes to hospice. So I, I think that's a great segue to talk about your work. But before we do that, uh, can you talk a little bit about your heritage and, and how was your upbringing like? So I was born here in Miami, Florida. I, my family is from Nicaragua. I spent my childhood in Nicaragua from ages two to five. Uh, so born in Miami, moved to Nicaragua for a few years, then came back. Uh, 
Uh, growing up, Spanish was the language that I spoke at home. My mom was one of those, you know, the parents who would say, you know, English, you can speak it in school with your friends, but in Spanish, at home, we're going to speak nothing but Spanish. And the reason behind that is because the majority of my family is in Nicaragua and they speak Spanish. And just, you know, imagine having all these relatives that you can't speak to or at least at the bare minimum understand because of a language barrier. So she was very adamant about that. And, you know, lo and behold, I've been working as a music therapist since 2015. And the area I was initially assigned to was Hialeah, Florida, which for those that don't know, that has the highest per capita concentration of Cuban and Cuban America. I think a census one year in particular had about 95% of those who lived in the Hialeah area uh, spoke Spanish at home. And my and my census of patient caseload reflected just that it was it was very rare to have an English speaking patient in the Hialeah Miami Lakes area very rare very rare but uh, my upbringing you know I, I went to local high schools such as Miami Kennedy Senior High School was in. Uh, band. I played bass clarinet. That was my primary instrument. Went to the University of Miami, studied my undergraduate degree there, uh, clarinet performance and music therapy. I did both double majors because I couldn't decide what to do for a living. But that's a, I, yeah, <laughs> you are brave. Not sure I would do it again, <laughs> but honestly, I'm glad I did because I felt like just having that work ethic has definitely prepared me to just work really well as a music therapist and just be really diligent. It was really hard. I'm not the kind of friend. <laughs> it was just just trying to do practicum, senior practicums while doing a junior recital and a senior recital. It's it's a bit nuts. Uh, but you know, I'm here, I'm alive, and I can't complain. Honestly, and I have no regrets. <laughs> That's that's an amazing story. You are very brave. I mean, I see a lot of people that do these double majors and I I did my undergrad in jazz performance and then I found music therapy when I was in my junior year of of college. And so that's why I decided to then go to do music therapy in, in Florida State. But those people that do double majors, I just I just take my hat. I mean, sombrero is out for you, man. Um, and yeah, and, and, yeah. I, and I can definitely relate to the, the upbringing, not in my case, cause I, I grew up in Puerto Rico, but now being a father of a five-year-old, how can I be mindful of making sure that Spanish will remain alive at the household? Uh, especially right. because if, you know, I'm, I'm speaking Spanish, I mean, English all the time at work and then I come home and then when I have her, it's just kind of hard to flip the switch, but really knowing the value. So, so as you were growing up and, and your parents were pushing for that Spanish language, um, how do you think that benefited you both personally and professionally now that you're working as a music therapist? Oh, wow. Uh, just <laughs> it's undescribable. It's just priceless, honestly, because um, just to kind of give some context in Miami, a lot of the staff that work in hospice, the, the nurses, the case managers, a lot of the, the vast majority are Cuban. And a lot of them were Cuban doctors that when they came to to Miami, you know, their medical degree, because they, I, I don't know exactly the reasons why, but in the United States, it's not recognized. So the next best thing that they can go for that was the quickest and easiest was nursing. So there's a lot of Cuban nurses. And, you know, with my teams, we, we, we do our meetings and we have our communications in the units throughout the day. And the majority of the time, all of that communication is in Spanish. 
just because that's the easiest way for them to communicate the medical terms, uh, diagnosis, symptoms, and all of that. And, you know, had I not had my upbringing, I, I would imagine it'd be difficult, not only for, for me to understand them, but for them to also understand me in the sense that just any peer interactions, you know, just because they I wouldn't be, they would try to be telling me these things, these little nuances when you, when you socialize with your, with your coworkers in the units. And when we, even if it's very minor, you know, throughout the day, uh, but those type of interactions, the, the bonds that you develop, uh, it, it definitely, I feel had I not had this upbringing, um, especially in Miami, Florida, where it's so necessary. Uh, and I tell all my students, you know, whenever I have practicums or interns, it's like, just try your best, just do your best to get into the culture because they know what it's like to speak another language, you know, uh, especially with, with working with these coworkers. And, and I think there's, there's beauty in that that we can learn from each other. But I feel that, you know, if, if I didn't have that upbringing, I feel just the simple fact that 95% of my case, the, the, the patients and families that I served were Spanish speaking. I can ima only imagine how much of a struggle that would have been had I not had uh, Spanish as, as a language that was really, really fortified uh, growing up. Now, it, it is difficult. Uh, it, it definitely is difficult, especially when, when there are um, different cultures involved or, or uh, patients or families that don't speak English. Like in, in my case, if we, sorry, that don't speak Spanish, uh, there are some cases where I'm usually the one, since I'm able to speak English most comfortably, I'm a bit of a mediator between some of the nurses and myself. They're able to speak English, but there are some terms that they're, they're even they themselves uh, have trouble like translating. You know, and I think this is something that, that happens a lot is from people who have emigrated from a different country to come to make a living in this country. And they're, they're doing their best to serve the patients. But even then, when there's those like cultural barriers, you know what I mean? No, for sure. And and they are using you as a powerful tool also for rapport building with the with the patients and understanding that you're part of that team that is treating the patient uh, and that can communicate that way. And so one question that I had for you as I hear you talk is how do you think that the, your culture, right, your upbringing, that, that culture that you bring with you, how does that inform you as a therapist when you're working with, with your patients? How does your cultural background influence the way you, that you deliver therapy? I feel that because I had to be open to not only just the culture that I was receiving at home, but also the culture that I experienced outside of home when I went to school, when I hung out with my friends. I, I I was exposed to a lot of different cultures and, and I remember growing up developing a language was something that was slower for me because I was learning Spanish and English at the same time. I was used to taking in a lot of information, but I also had to develop an open mind, you know, understand that, you know, even something as a fork, like objects had multiple, uh, can be descript multiple descriptors. And so when I approach patients with families, I feel that it gives me a more open mind when, when I work with not just Latino patients, but if I have patients from Trinidad and Tobago, or if I have a patient from Taiwan, you know, definitely it, it gives me the mindset to just be open to the culture, to be open le to, to learn from them, uh, regardless of whether what their background is. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I think that's a great point that you're driving. We're talking about the, the Spanish speaking population, but 
we as Spanish-speaking therapists, we also go through this journey of the people that are listening to the, this podcast who are English speakers and are trying to figure out how to be more successful in their sessions with their Spanish-speaking clients and, and how to be more culturally appropriate and more culturally sensitive and, right. and learn how other, uh, you know, our, our cultures in Latin America are like. But we also go through that, right? Because absolutely, United States is becoming this big melting pot that now you go to Florida, like here in Texas, I work in Houston and I believe the last census showed that Houston was one of the most biodiverse cities in the whole nation. We have people from Arabic countries and Asia. And, right. and so it's no surprise to me going to see a patient that speaks only Arabic or that speaks only, you know, Mandarin or speaks only, um, uh, I don't know. Um, we have a lot of, of nurses or staff members who are from the Philippines and so they speak Tagalog. Right. Uh, so th that's all, all part of it, you know. Um, so, so that's a good point. And especially with the topic that we're, we have at hand today with, with your specialty, mm -hmm. which is hospice care. Right. Right. And so as you navigate hospice care and, and end of life, how do you see that the Latinx, the Latinos and Latinas, right. Spanish speaking clients and, and patients that you have, what do you think is the biggest very marked difference that you see in the dying the death and dying process with the with the latinos right definitely the decision making process at end of life uh i know that at least from what i've seen uh when it comes to more caucasians or english speaking backgrounds they're more independent like you know the person The, the person might be the, they themselves are the ones that signed their consent. So, you know, they are alert and oriented times four. They understand person, place, and time and the situation to what's going on. And, and they'll sign their own consents and they'll have their mind made up and all the decisions and everything made. But for uh, someone from a Latino culture, even though the person might be alert and oriented times four to person, place, and time and situation, they might have their spouse be the decision maker. Uh, and, and they might have, or actually just, they might assign one, like the eldest child to, to make the decisions, but with the implication that everybody is going to play a role in the decision-making process. And I know that can be very difficult because especially in larger families, when there's, for example, three, four, or even five, uh, adult children, that definitely can get complex in the decision making and it, and it can be harder, but there definitely is that, that unity that in that decision making process. And I, you know, I think that also reflects on how the upbringings tends to be in Latino cultures you, you, in, in the home, you'll have the immediate family, like you'll have the patient, their spouse, maybe you'll have their adult children, maybe the grandchildren there. Maybe you might have like an extended relative, like a nephew or, or a niece of the, of the patient themselves. And it, it might be this large family's nucleus and they're all very much involved in the decision-making process. They're all involved in the ins and outs of the, of the plan of care. And, you know, here in the United States, how we only have the one person we're supposed to give the medical information to because of HIPAA and the, you know, the proxy, the person that makes the decision. And, and we do abide to that. You know, we, we respect that it's only the one person. They are the designated person, but we'll receive calls from family members, you know, and their extended family of the patient wanting to know about their loved one. And we have to tell them like, look, because of HIPAA, we can't 
tell you this information. But it's 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 part of that like everybody is involved, everybody wants to know type of thing. And I noticed that that's definitely a very big thing. You know, it's like, no, because, you know, she's my uncle from like two cousins <laughs> down and, and just like, but even then, but, but even then he's like a second yeah, father to me, yeah. you know, things like that, you know, it's like a very huge family. Even, even those, those friends that become family, you see that a lot. Correct. As well. Yeah. That's part of the openness of, of the culture. At least, you know, I remember growing up in Puerto Rico, uh, you know, my, I will call my neighbors, Tia, like aunt or tío, yes. because yes. we've been living in the same street for 15 years. And when my mom is not at home, you know, they, they cross the street and they feed me and I play with their kids and I see their kids more than I even see my cousins, yeah. you know? So, so there's this relationship yeah. where the family unit is not only the natural family, right? By blood, but there's this whole gamut of people that are surrounding that, uh, And that's something that mm -hmm. is interesting because I see that the concept of, of extended family, you can see it growing more and more now in, in the other cultures here mm -hmm. in the United States as well. So that as we blend as a, mm -hmm. as a nation, now you start seeing a lot more families getting involved in care as well from, from, from other cultures. And, yes. and I think it's interesting how... The, the cultures kind of impact each other and feed each other in, in those kind of scenarios, especially in, in hospice and end of life like that. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you know, it, it's, it's beautiful to see that everybody's involved, but definitely when it makes, to, when it comes to those decisions, like difficult decisions, uh, such as like, do we use morphing? Do we not use morphing? Educating on the use of morphing, you know, because there's a huge fear that morphing is going to kill my loved one. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case. You know, it, it definitely, it gets more complex because now it's, it goes from just telling just one person, but having to explain to a whole family with the consent of the person who is allowing this communication to occur. Right. To occur. Yeah. And, and especially because in our culture, you know, Vicks Vaporub, Vicks Vaporub, that, that cures everything. <laughs> <laughs> that cures everything. Yeah. So when you go from, you know, uh, have a little bit of pain, you know, give me some Vicks Vaporub or give me some two Tylenols and I'm good to go. And then all of a sudden you go into the end of life experience and, and the dying experience and you say, hey, we're going to be administering morphine. And the family is like, ¿Qué tú me dices? you know, it's, yeah. it's like this big impact for them. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, yes. definitely medication, um, when they're administering medications, the education might be a little bit more intense because this is very, uh, very different waters for them that they're roaming in, uh, that they're not aware of. And, right. and you know, in your experience, what, what are other misconceptions of the, of the end of light treatments as you provide morphine por, for pain and then Senacot because, you know, morphine then creates constipation and, and then they, they have to do an IV and then families might think that, oh, the IV is extending their suffering. Like, like uh, how are those interactions like when you see, when you see the, the Latinos? Right. So, you know, the morphine is definitely a big one because the morphine has, has gotten this, this bad rep of, It's going to kill my loved one. You know, it's going to, it's like, I want him to, I want the, the thing is people want their loved one to be awake and able to converse, but they also want their loved one to be pain-free and in end of life, it's virtually impossible to have both. It's usually the person is alert and oriented 
but they are having all these symptoms such as shortness of breath and pain, or we have those symptoms in the control, but the patient is uh, lethargic, minimally responsive. And it, it, it takes, we, we have to, I, I, I always like to tell my students, we're going to hashtag ISO principle it and just meet the family where they're at because I, if I, I can educate them as much as possible, but if in their head they don't understand it until they finally, you know, when they fall off the tree, yeah, you yes. know, they, they realize like they finally get it. Oh, they need morphine or, oh, you know, I, I can't keep them awake as much as I would like them to. You know, it, it, it takes a while. It takes a while. And some of them, like you'll see some family, half of the family agrees with you and the other half does not. And, you know, that's that's up to them. I don't I don't get that. But it's just going in there with lots of patience and, 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 and lots of understanding that that it's it's a difficult decision. Just have to make your loved one to decide, like, I want them to be comfortable, but at the same time, I can't speak to them. So how can, how can we arrange that? You know, sometimes we, we, in other circumstances, because I know that because of the pandemic, the visits of, of, of patients and their families is being heavily reduced uh, as a precaution. But in other circumstances, we may have more family present at some point, maybe have family present before they start the morphine drip so that they can have any interaction you know, because we know that the medication will will cause them to decrease alertness. Um, but definitely, it's, it's just, and it's honestly, it's not unlike uh, America, like other cultures, because I, I think it's more we, even within a family. Because I've met some Latino families that are very understanding, and they don't have the misconceptions about morphing. Whereas I've had other Latino families that they do. And I could say the same thing about uh, Caucasian families, African-American families, Asian families, you know. Um, it's, it's something that's so common because it's like there's the genuine concern that they want their loved one to be comfortable. But they're also fighting their own desire to be able to interact with their loved one. And that's a really hard decision. Another thing... <laughs> <laughs> and this one only makes me laugh because this is something that is so like you know you have to eat like tienes que comer you have to eat so funny <laughs> i was just gonna ask you about that because when i worked when i yeah. worked with you guys uh back a few years ago in hospice i remember seeing my, my patients i don't see a lot of end of life patients anymore but seeing them down there especially the latino families and for for our culture eating is a is a signal of health right so it's like this barometer that that you know when, when you go visit when i go visit my family i'm sure so i'm never in the perfect weight right so i'm either too too skinny or i'm overweight <laughs> no, <laughs> there, there is no escaping that I, i tell you in the same day when i worked in highly in the same day I saw a patient that I, that, you know, I visit once or twice a month, uh, and I'll see two patients, and one of them would literally tell me, "Pero people, tú estás comiendo mucho, you're eating way too much, you're gaining weight." And literally in the same day, I'm telling you, like within the fractions of like maybe three hours, I'll have another patient that tells me, "Pero people, tienes que comer, you're not eating enough, yeah, you're too skinny." 
I'm just like, and then like me personally, I just had to learn to just deflect it. Like if they say I'm fatter for whatever reason, okay, I'm happy. I'm eating healthy. And if they say I'm not skinny enough, okay, then I'll eat a little bit more. I just deflect it. But like everybody has an opinion. You have a zit on your face, they have an opinion. They will tell you. They will just blatantly tell you. Like, mira, tienes una empollita, tienes una empinilla aquí. You know, and, and they, the thing is, it's because of that familial aspect they take in, we take in everybody as family. Like my neighbor is my family, you know, like your, your neighbor, like you were saying, your neighbor of 15 years with your aunt. Well, here, here's this music therapist that's coming to visit you at least once or twice a month or maybe more, depending on the circumstances that presenting itself. And you, as a music therapist, you're there in those very intimate times. You're there at the end of the person's life. You get to see family at their worst. You get to see the worst state of a patient in, in their life. You know, it's you're literally seeing them at the worst point of their life. Why? You know, they, they're going through a terminal diagnosis. They're not going to survive this. This isn't one of those, if it doesn't kill you, it's going to make you stronger. It's like, no, this is actually, you know, this is a terminal condition. We are at our worst. And so when you build that rapport, it's very natural for the family out of love. And I've learned to just see it that way. Out of love, they just are so concerned in your best interest that they will overstep the boundary and they'll give you their opinion. You, I haven't seen you in a month and you look like, you, you look like a whale. You need to stop eating. Or you know what? You need to eat more. And in the middle of the session, you're having your interaction with, with Pepito and then the wife of Pepito comes to you with a ham and cheese platter and crackers. And, and then they're like, here, eat. And I'm there like, uh, <laughs> like, what do I, like, what they're like, eat. And, and that's such a, that's such a huge cultural thing. Cause that's also a sign of gratitude, you know? And, and they, they, and I could take this moment cause I know that the code of ethics for AMTA was re, very much like very recently updated. And I know that the word, the wording on that has become more open-ended on the receiving gifts to be more culturally sensitive because when, when a Latino family, maybe they bring you a little cafecito or they give you some crackers with the Vienna sausages, whatever, you know, it can come off as offensive if you deny that, you know? And the thing is, you don't even ask for it. They just, they just take it upon themselves to give it to you because they see the good that you're doing to their loved one. And they see you, someone that they initially, in the first few visits, they see you as a guest, but then they start seeing you more as family, you know, and then they start showing you pictures of their grandson or their great grandson, you know? And so it, it's a little tangle because he has to know your boundaries and know how to be respectful, but also know the, the cultural, like what's cultural and what's overstepping your boundaries. You know, it's not like you're going to, you're going to start going to their great grandson's fifth birthday party. Like, okay, now wait a second. But you know, if them bringing you a little cafecito because they just want to give something back to you in the middle of the session. That's that's very normal and it's very typical. You know, I, when I, whenever I have uh, interns that are from, not from Miami or not from a Latino background, I tell them that's like, by the way, you will be fed at one point. <laughs> like I just I just tell them you will be fed. It's gonna happen. They're just gonna you're they're just unsolicited plate of food. And you know that that's just that's just because the, they care about you know like it's just a way of giving back. But yes, going back to the the patients and families, the food, the eating, because that's such a huge thing. It's such an indicator that you know even if a patient 
it's within their last seven days of life. But even if they had a tablespoon of pudding, at least they are eating. Even if they had three sips of water, at least they are drinking. They have that, they hang on to that tiny bit of hope. I mean, even growing up, um, my mom never did this, but more so my uncles in Nicaragua, because they definitely were tougher. But they would be like, oh, you know, you have to eat because, you know, there's these poor children that don't have any food and you have to eat. And they would kind of guilt you into eating like you have to eat. They, they get, yeah. And if not, you're going to get like tangla or something of that sort. Like you better eat type of thing. <laughs> and and so it's 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 eating is so into the culture so that when someone stops eating, you know, it, it, it's, it's really hard when um, when a person even even before hospice, when they start declining and they start eating less that becomes a concern you know you need to eat you're going to end up in the hospital you're going to end up in the hospital for dehydration and then it's 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 a family effort everybody's involved the mother the if it's like the patient their their adult daughter is is the primary caregiver but the adult grandchildren are also going to be involved in helping the mother their mother or their grandmother to eat it's going to be a group effort. Everybody's going to be involved because you have to eat because it's it's that's how you know that a person is alive. And even if they are bed bound, even though they are minimally responsive, they're going to try to feed the patient. And it's really really hard when the person, the patient, is having dysphagia, so they're having the difficulty swallowing, and we have to reinforce the teaching that you can't feed them anymore because this is going to cause an aspiration pneumonia. It's The food is going to go through the wrong pike and it's going to complicate things any worse. And so it's a lot of reinforcing and a lot of teaching. And sometimes, unfortunately, they have to see it themselves. Like they'll try to give a little bit of water without thickener to their loved one and then their loved one is going to aspirate. And then they're going to realize, oh, snap. You know, I, I nearly choked them by trying to help them by giving them some water, you know, and, and it's and it's a horrible wake up call. But it's one that we have to treat, you know, with a lot of understanding and a lot of patience because it's going to take a lot of redirecting and reinforcement because it's it's the culture of you have to eat. You have to eat. You have to eat. <laughs> I don't care if you're. I don't care if you are saying that you're not hungry. You have to eat something to keep something in your system. But then we also have to educate to the family and be like, you know, the body is shutting down. The body requires less energy. It also, uh, it, it it's also harder for the body to digest food. So all these reasons we have to like explain to them and very, very simply and directly clearly just explain to them the reasons why feeding them is not a good idea and it, it might take until the fourth fifth time but you know explaining the you know the risk of an aspiration pneumonia the fact that hey your loved one he is going to sleep more because whatever minimal interaction is going to exhaust him he's also going to eat less he's going to eat less because he's not exerting much energy he's staying in bed all day right his body's shutting down. His body can't digest all the food. You know, there's some cases where they try to feed via peg tube. And that, that's, that's another alternative that some families might resort to. They will say, okay, we're going to put a peg tube so that at least we can still, they can't swallow, but we're going to feed them through a peg tube and we're going to keep them alive for about five more years. Because it's crazy how much a peg tube can prolong life. Uh, but, then the, but then there's the question of, 
is that the quality of life that you want for your loved one? Is that the quality of life that they wanted? You know, and it's really, really hard and we can't judge them. We have to be very patient and be very respectful about it, but be aware that this is, this is a reality because food is such, is such a huge thing. When someone's not eating, like if you're at a dinner table and someone's not eating, they're going to be asking what's wrong. Are you, are you depressed? Are you this? Are you that? What's wrong? And then everybody's going to like in the background, the person might not say that they're wrong. They might not self-disclose that, but people in the background will be like, Oye, pero fulanito, tal, que le pasa? Like, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with Charlie? What's wrong with him? They're going to try to figure out, you know, there's that like buzzing. Yeah. And, in the and that goes back to the idea that you were talking, you were talking about ISO principle. And so ISO principle mm-hmm. is not only the way that, as music therapists, we deliver the music to match the patient's affect and behavior and in the moment. But ISO principle is really the whole way that we present ourselves as therapists. And so if we present ourselves meeting the patient where they're at, meeting the family where they're at, so that they can be receptive and open to what we're going to talk about. Because, you know, like you said, there's all of these... uh, cultural um, expectations, right? That we want the, the, the person to eat because that's a sign of health. Uh, but mm-hmm. then the doctor might say, like you're saying that this is not the time or you might say this is not the time. And then that starts creating dynamics between the medical team and the, and the, and the patient mm-hmm. care between the medical team and the family. So mm-hmm. have you ever been in the middle of a medical team and family feud and you've been kind of like the person to facilitate conversation? I, I have. <laughs> and, and, it's, and, and even those that, that get very loud, that for anybody else, it may seem like, oh, they're having a full-blown argument, but no, they're just, they talk loud. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, that's another thing, you know? They may say, it's like, oh, why are they yelling? It's like, that's, they're not yelling. I promise you that's, that's their default volume. Um, and it's, it, that's another cultural thing. Yeah. I, I've had to be the one in between there and basically disassembling the jargon from the medical staff and making it just more understandable to, to the family, but presents presenting it in a tactful way. That's respectful. Like we validate the, we understand that you want to feed them because it's a sign of health. We understand that they need to drink the water to stay hydrated. We need to, we understand and just validate that. Like, I, look, I understand where you're coming from. You know, I understand why this and I totally get it. But what the doctor is trying to say is this because it's going to cost this. And the family might say, I understand what they're saying, but I don't care. I want to keep feeding them anyways. And ultimately it's their decision to do so. You know, and that's really, really hard because, uh, you know, we, 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 we see what's medically best for them, but they also, they, it's their loved one, you know, and I, I, as much as I would want to, as much as I educate and reinforce the teaching, they're ultimately the ones that make the decision and, and I can't force that kind of decision on to them, you know. Uh, but yeah, I've had to be a mediator. Some families are very receptive to it. And especially when, when, when you validate them, 
you know, meet them where they're at, just ISO principle, and, and then helping them redirect them to the understanding, and to understanding what the doctor is trying to say. Uh, especially when it's a doctor that, you know, it might be an African-American doctor or a Caucasian doctor trying to communicate this to a lot of American family, you know, and, and really trying to get those points across. Um, and it's, it's, it's always like validating, like understanding where the patient slash family is coming from and then explaining kind of like gently but firmly countering those thoughts but only after you validate it, right. if that makes sense. So, so that pretty much you're bringing them to the to the to a middle ground. Yes, essentially. There's what the doctor or the nurse practitioner said, and then figuring out how they received it when they understood, and how can we clarify mm -hmm. what they heard, and then going to the medical staff if they're not present at the moment, say, you know. I, I know that you explained this to them and, and I was present for part of it maybe, but this is how they interpreted it. And so this is mm -hmm. why I explained to them, is, 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 is that what you meant? Right. Or even just clarifying with them beforehand so that we're all making sure that we're, we're working as an integrative, um, as an integrated team that we're all being part of that same communication. Um, there's so much good right. information and, I'm sure that I'm going to have to have you for another episode because this is this really, really good. But I do want to cover two more things. Um, number sure. one is uh, what are some of the most common words in Spanish that show up in hospice care? So as I have listeners right now that might be working in, in hospice care, what are some of the most common Spanish words that they might encounter in hospice in Spanish? So, you know, one thing, even the word, the term hospicio, el hospicio, uh, which is just hospice. But for a lot of the Latin American cultures, hospice is still an asylum, a place that they get said, like, I, you know, quiero ir al hospicio. I don't want to go to the hospice. So explaining to them that hospice is not a place. In my case, I work in a hospice unit, but explaining to them the hospice is a service. You know, it could be done at home, it could be done at the ALF, the nursing home, wherever the patient resides. If they happen to be in the inpatient unit, well, the hospice service is there. But it, because that's a fear. The hospice is a place where they're going to go to die, where they're going to be abandoned. That's it. That's it. End of the line. And, you know, there's also the fear of el que dirán. Like, what are the people going to say? What are What is so-and-so? Because, you know, there's el chisme. Like all the gossip that, that happens in the community, especially in smaller towns, because Fulanito de, de la Cuadra de, de no sé qué cosa, like, you know, just down the street, you know, the neighbor from two blocks over already knows this. And especially more so in Latin American cultures, that, that gossiping tends to be like that word of mouth tends to spread a lot. So that although it doesn't happen here in, so much in the States because the cities are much, much larger, that's still word of mouth with the ease of technology that we have between WhatsApp, Facebook, Messenger and whatnot. It's, it's so easy to, so that the word spreads and there's all the, what are people going to say? So, el hospicio, to, to explain, to clarify that. Uh, the term dying and muriendo. So, this is something that I, I find very, very interesting. And, and I've made this observation in the years that I've been working. Because we can say that a patient is He, a patient is uh, terminally ill. They have a diagnosis of uh, end-stage lung cancer. Their prognosis is about three, four months. They are dying, right? They are dying. We could say that medically they are dying. You tell a patient and family that Latino that, they, that their loved one is dying, they're going to be like, 
no, he's not dying. And you're going to assume that they're in denial. But the issue is that the term dying, more specifically muriendo, is reserved for when a person is imminently dying. When a person has the agonizing respiration, the long periods of apnea, that imminent death. When death is imminent, then the family will start saying, so-and-so is dying. And that's something that I've noticed that many people will say that their loved one, like, you know, the, the nurses, the, the social worker, like the whole IDG will go in and they'll say that the family is in denial because they're saying that the patient is not dying. And what there's that misconception is like, it's not that they don't under, and then I'll have a conversation with them. And I'll use terms like, do you understand that your, your diagnosis is terminal? Que, que la, enfermer, la enfermedad, the sickness, es terminal, terminal, terminal. And then yes, they understand that the disease is terminal, but that they are not dying. Pero él no se está muriendo, but he is not dying. So you see a distinction. They understand that their cancer is terminal. They understand that they have about three months to live, but to them, they are not dying because dying is very specifically when a person's imminent. And I noticed that, and, and that, you know, people that, that will affect the plan of care because then the IDG starts thinking that the person's in denial. They don't want to accept that he is dying. Why? Because the family's saying, no se está muriendo, he is not dying. But there is that distinction that in Spanish, muriendo is specifically for when the person's imminent. You know, then there's a term declinando, declining. Declinando is a good term because we can say that the person is declining. They have that functional decline. Está declinando, está comiendo menos, he's eating less, él duerme más, he sleeps more, things of that sort. So we use when we use the more descriptors, instead of just saying dying, but we, we elaborate a little bit more. Well, what do you mean by dying, you know? What does that mean? Well, he's declining as evidenced by, you know, he's having this weight loss, he's sleeping more, he has increased anxiety because increase of periods of shortness of breath and, and really explain it instead of just saying, well, the person's dying. You know, and, and, and in, in English, when we document the person is dying and you'll see it in IDG, like, you know, the person is still appropriate for hospice care, end of life care, they are dying because they have a, a terminal diagnosis of six months or less. But you tell that to a Latino family and they, even if they have six months, even if they're functionally and they can still function with a walker, their PPS might be 40. And in medical terms, they might be dying because they have functional decline. But until they are bedridden, minimally responsive, agonal, imminent, the family won't say they're dying until that moment. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think, and they think that's a huge indicator. Right. Because in, in, in the English term, it will be actively dying, right? When, when it's actually occurring. Exactly. Yes. Yes. When it's actively dying, when the person's imminent. But in Spanish, it's not active. Like that I've, in all the years I've been working, I have never heard activamente muriendo, which is the direct translation of actively dying. It's just muriendo. There's, there's, there's no way, there's, there is no actively dying. It's just, if there was one, it's just place a straight in point, muriendo. Yes. This is such great information. And just to wrap up, uh, I know there's a lot of music therapy folks out there that are listening to us and they're saying, you know, Carlos Andres, please, can you tell me what are the five songs that you play all the time? Like, what are some five songs that I can learn <laughs> that 
you know, maybe I'll try to learn uh, as I listen to this episode, I'm, I'm going to try to learn some of these words, put them into context with some of the phrases. But as I facilitate music, like what are some of your maybe like the five songs that you play a lot that you see that across all of the Spanish speaking cultures, a lot of people might know and they're very hospice appropriate. Right. Okay. Well, just because, and I think this is more of a Miami thing, more so than anything. But the song Guantanamera, which is probably the probably the most popular Cuban folk song you're gonna find. <laughs> it, it's even patients who are Cuban. I'm telling you, like patients from Venezuela, from Mexico, from Dominican Republic, like even Caucasian patients who have lived in Miami long enough know of Guantanamera. Oh, yeah. Guantanamera. And, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna, exactly. I'll make sure to, to link in the show notes one of the, the one of the videos for that song yeah you know and, and you know and honestly a lot of this it depends where the patient is from mm. because a patient from Mexico is going to have a different musical preference than a patient from Colombia and that's going to be different from a patient from Argentina and Cuba you know or Puerto Rico like you know everybody has there's there's there are some overlaps Like there are these boleros that, that will span different countries. Like for example, the trio Los Panchos, they're mm -hmm. an artist, they're from Mexico, but like you can go, you can span from Mexico all the way to like Uruguay, Argentina with that, just with trio Los Panchos. Uh, one of them that's really good is um, Perfidia, yes. like trio Los Panchos or... Sin ti. And I like the song Sin ti in hospice because it's without you, I can't live anymore. So it's that, it's that like, without my partner, I can't live anymore. You know, this pain, like it's, it's like without you, like it's, it's kind of expressing that pain. Sin ti no puedo vivir jamás. You know, I can't imagine life without you. Mm -hmm. um, and then another one by Los Panchos is Nosotros. Uh, and the story, there's a story behind this that the composer of the song Nosotros, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, actually, I would have to search my iPad real quick to find who wrote it. But Nosotros, Trio Los Panchos, they sing a version of that song. And this song is a story about a, a musician. And it's a love letter, but it's also a goodbye letter uh, to his loved one. Because And they're, and they're saying that he, he's basically saying goodbye to his loved one because She doesn't know it, but he was diagnosed with tuberculosis. And at that time, that was fatal. So to protect her, because it was extremely contagious at that time, he had to leave her. You know? Yeah. And that's, a, that's also like a good goodbye say, uh, uh, song. Um, a song from Puerto Rico that, that spans various countries. And it's a great goodbye song. It's <laughs> Mi Viejo San Juan. Yes. And I Mi love San that Juan. song. That's that one of my one, favorite oh. all-timers. That one gets people crying. It's a goodbye song. It's also a song that talks about home, like wanting to be back home. Mi viejo San Juan, you know, it, it's like that that land that I loved, and you know, saying goodbye to that land because it's it's a, it's also a migration song. Yeah, um, the yeah. chorus itself has the adios, 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 Boricen querido, you know, yeah. and the Boricen querido, you can like insert the patient's name, like you know, Pedrito querido, or something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah, lyric substitution, um, perfect. Very, yeah, um, it's just so many. It, like if I had to just say, uh, Cielito lindo in Mexico, that's the ay 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 ay. Canta y no llores. Like that's a that's a huge um, song from Mexico. 
It's a very traditionally folk song. It's it's really old, uh, but various patients, especially hospice and the life care, they all know it. I use that song, especially if I have a patient who has Alzheimer's dementia, and they're doing the hi yeah 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 because you know they're complaining. Maybe they're yeah. agitated. Maybe they have the pain. I will use the song Cielito Lindo, that chorus, as a way to meet the patient and and and, and kind of modulate with that. You know, work with kind of like echo what they're saying and use that IAI chorus when a patient is complaining of IAI. Mm-hmm. And and you can even do a lyric analysis, you know, it says canta y no llores, uh, porque cantando se alegra los corazones. So it's like sing, don't cry, because singing makes the heart feel better. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and um, that's so cool. So you, you, you actually use it as entrainment. So when yeah. you're doing the I, I, I with them, you're in training them in their suffering and then you can slowly move them to where you want them to be with that co- comfort I, level that you want them to be at. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, there, there is the other and the other aspect, which we didn't talk about today, because that's that's a whole nother discussion, but spiritual music at end of life for Latino cultures. And that's a whole different realm uh, because you have your some pa- uh, patient families that are Catholic, uh, evangelical, Protestant, and, and there's a lot of Latin American music, uh, Christian or even Jewish as well, that's in Spanish, you know, and, and the spiritual realm, that's a whole nother world as well. Yeah, I did um, notice a lot of the Catholic families uh, would know a lot of the, they would request a lot of the Ave Maria by Schumann. Uh, yes, they would request, yeah, they would request a lot of, um, Lord, you have come to the she- seashore or the lake shore, right? Um, yes, and then oh, that's another thing. There, there are songs that are English and Spanish translations to them, too, which is actually a really good way. If you don't have any songs in, in, in Spanish, like for example, Frank Sinatra's My Way. There's a Spanish version called A Mi Manera, Manera. By, Vicente, yeah, <laughs> by Vicente Fernandez. And it's it's the same message. And yes. it's, you know, the same life closure. And it's a great song. And Vicente Fernandez, he's huge in Mexico and even some other places outside of Mexico. People know of him already. So uh, there are a couple songs like that. Um, uh, I mean, this is an older one, but Doris Day, perhaps, 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 the original one is in Spanish. Quizás, quizás, quizás. Um, what other one? Because there are there are a handful of songs that that have that bilingualness to it. Uh, Nat King Cole sings a bunch of uh, Latin American music as well, and and for example, my grandma, she would be like, oh, eh, and this would be like. She would say mi negrito, which is like my, my <laughs> call. That's what he would refer her to. Um, and, and all his music, because he would, he, he with his little, with a little gringo accent, if you will, you know, the, the Americano uh, would sing these, uh, these uh, Cuban boleros and, 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 and folk songs. Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned something. I was just talking about this with somebody in the music, um, Spanish resources in music uh, Facebook group. Uh, somebody was mm-hmm. talking about wanting to play Celia Cruz. Um, I think it was La Vida es un Carnaval or, or one of oh, these songs. Yes. But uh, so she was a, a, Caucasian, a Caucasian music therapist, uh, but she was worried about playing a Celia Cruz song because the Celia Cruz song said Negro. 
or negrito, which in the English right. translations in the English culture that right. might be you know derogatory racist right. and the yeah and and so giving her that that calming assertion and, and validation saying yes it's okay because in our cultures that is a term of endearment and mm -hmm. i shared with her how my grandfather actually called my grandmother our whole lives negrita negrita quieres café do you want some coffee negrita tiene hambre are you hungry he, he always talked like yes. that and so you know it, it's important also to know this cultural context of when you're using those kind of words and it's okay because it, this is part of the music that the person loves that the person connects with that the person mm -hmm. is going to emote to and express um and, and so yeah definitely in one of the episodes i'm going to actually talk about that uh with one of my professors who's a ethnomusicologist and talk about also the 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 aspects and the impact of race in culture and in the arts in latin america uh but yeah that's that's a total different <laughs> topic we can talk about spirituality so that might be another uh good uh episode to to talk about that um right but We are out of time. I'm so thankful, Carlos Andres, for, for you spending this this hour with me. Uh, I know My that pleasure. you're doing great work. I, I admire hospice workers because you're so important in, in the whole. When we, when we think about medical care as a big spectrum, right? We think about yeah. from the, the neonatal intensive care unit and the babies and the newborns all the way through palliative care and end of life. That piece of hospice, like you said, that hospice is not a place, but a service. El hospicio no es un lugar, es un servicio. And, and you guys have hearts of servants. And I saw that when I worked with you guys. So kudos to you. Thank you so much for your time. And if any of our audience maybe want to ask you a quick question or just get in touch with you, um, how can they do that? Um, I think I'm generally easy to find on Facebook Messenger. You can send me a quick message. It's just like, it's Carlos hyphen Andres, last name Rodriguez. Um, I, I've actually, in the past, I've received messages from other music therapists uh, via Facebook Messenger. And and um, you can find me pretty, I think people have had a pretty easy time finding me that way. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. Send me a message there as well. I, I do check that one every regularly. Um, and, and same thing as well. Um, the Carlos hyphen Andres and the last name Rodriguez. Those are two great ways I feel you can reach out to me if you have any questions or want me to elaborate or if you want to set up a phone call, we can figure out a time and, and, and talk more. I'd be more than happy to. Thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carlos Andres Rodriguez. And thank you so much, Carlos Andres, for being part of this interview today. Remember, if you want to stay in touch, you can do so through the social platforms, Facebook and Instagram at Spanish for Creative Clinicians. You can also email me Spanish for Creative Clinicians at gmail.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything that is happening with Spanish for Creative Clinicians, you can go to the website and sign up for the newsletter. When you go to SpanishforCreativeClinicians.com, which is the website, you're going to see the first time a pop-up to subscribe for the newsletter. You're going to receive a free little Spanish cheat sheet. And in return, I will be also sending you emails as the new episodes come out so you don't miss any of the cool projects that are going to be happening very, very soon. Upcoming interviews, super exciting stuff coming up, and I don't want you to miss it. So until then... 
Take care. I love you, familia. Talk to you soon. 